Yes, in the chat room, people are saying, well, there are almost 20 different words for strangers in the Bible. They're very similar to the case for man, which the King James indiscriminately translates from at least 10 different words, thereby not giving us any distinction among them, which is crucial to understanding what each different verse means, because they're not always talking about Adam, (laughs) and they're not always talking about Ish. They're not always talking about Enosh, nor are they talking about Nakar or Ger or things like that. You have to know the context, 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 as I like to say. The real estate is sold by location, location, location. The Bible is understood by context, context, context. So you cannot jump to any conclusions about any verse. You have to look at the context of the verse before you can declare that it means A, B, C, or D. And it could mean anything, including A, B, C, or D, or something else if you don't check the context. So that's what we do. That's why we do word studies. That's why we do comparative uh, verse studies to make sure, for example, the word rib in the Old Testament is the only place in, uh, I think it's Genesis 2, where it says Eve was made from Adam's rib. That's the only place where the word tzela, T-S-E-L-A, is translated as rib. Everywhere else it's translated as side, which means basically your sidekick, that Eve was chosen to be Adam's sidekick, and she was her DNA was upgraded to match that of, uh, of Adam so that they're both semi-divine beings, both of them being chosen out of the gene pool of Genesis 1 where all the Adamites were created and were being fruitful and multiplying. Okay? The vast majority of theologians utterly ignore the fact that the Adamites were being fruitful and multiplying and therefore that's where Cain got his wife from. (laughs) From that gene pool. And we know that Jews prefer white women just as the fallen angels preferred white women. It was Adamic women that these fallen angels were lusting after, not Negroes or, or Amerindians or China, Chinese women or anything like that. The word is Adam, the daughters of Adam, not the daughters of man, which is what your King James Version says. Okay, so clarity is everything. Oh, yeah, there we go. Clarity, clarity, clarity. If you don't get the context, 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 you don't get the clarity, clarity, clarity. So, this is where, this is this is my position, and I'm sticking to it. All right. So today, uh, I'm going to be doing part two of what I started last week about the a Wikipedia article on Isaiah 53, which is quite comprehensive. It's beyond my imagination how con- comprehensive this uh, article is from Wikipedia. They usually don't go into any great depth about what's going on in, in the scriptures, but I'm just going to have to quickly click on the link. Uh, okay, that's the Bible Gateway passage on Melchizedek. So it, it really talks about uh, Melchizedek in that passage and comparing the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, version of the Old Testament theology versus the Old Testament itself. And, of course, New Testament is involved there also. So it's very important that we understand that the, that the Dead Sea Scrolls 
have a tremendous amount of information to give us about these subjects. So let me see if I can find <laughs> find 70 generations. Hold on. Oh, that's that's the Watchers article. That's a really good article too. Because yeah, sometimes I accidentally cover up the article that I want to quote from with a, a new click, right? Too, too much clicking going on around here. And we want to be clicking our heels and not click ourselves into oblivion. But anyway, this is Wikipedia. Uh, and let, me put, let me put this in the chat room again. I thought I'd put it in the chat room, but I don't see it. So I'm going to copy it and put it into the chat room for all for all of us to read and share. Okay, come on. There it is. Okay. For all of us to read and share because this is actually very good. It's talking about the fragments of Dead Sea Scrolls that confirm the theology of Isaiah 53. And, of course, Isaiah 53 is, uh, I think that's, if I remember correctly, uh, the passage that says that uh, Mary was a virgin. This is also confirmed in the Septuagint, where the trans- uh, and, of course, the Septuagint was made by 70 or 72 Israelite, Judahite scribes, not Jews, and they would have translated it correctly. The Jews would never have translated this correctly. And they dispute whether or not Mary was a virgin. But it says about Isaiah 53, the prophecy that a virgin shall conceive. The Greek word that the Septuagint authors chose was parthenos. And parthenos has only one definition, and that is virgin. Okay? And you know, Michael and I have been uh, done a whole series on the fact that the Septuagint and the Masoretic texts mightily disagree in many places, but the Masoretic text is a Jewish version of the Old Testament scriptures, mightily redacted, a lot of stuff deleted, and then of course they add stuff too, which uh, is totally forbidden by by Moses, Genesis, or no, Deuteronomy four two. Thou shalt not add or subtract from the word that I have written for you. Okay, but that's what the Talmudic Jews do constantly. All right, so this is the uh, 4Q 541 fragment. Okay, well, here, let me just back up one paragraph. It is likely that the Qumran community saw Isaiah 52.7 as the beginning of the pericope, or that is the passage, and 52.13, starting a subsection within it. Second Temple Judaism, and there was no such thing as Second Temple Judaism. There was Second Temple Mosaism. The Pharisees are the authors of Judaism, and they did not come along until about 100 years before Christ. The Second Temple was long in existence already before they came along. Second Temple Mosaism scholar Craig Evans notes that the 1QISA3 includes a siglum, siglum, so a note in the margin at 52.7, just as it does in other major breaks of thought. Evans writes, quote, 
Although of uncertain meaning, this manuscript feature likely indicates the beginning of a new section, unquote. He notes that the Masoretic text includes a Samach for Seder at the same verse and a small Samach after 5212. Evans writes, quote, Accordingly, both the great Isaiah scroll of Qumran and the Masoretic text appear to view Isaiah 52, 7 through 12 and 52, 13 through 53, 12 as two related units perhaps with 52, 7 through 12, introducing the hymn. The Qumran community interpreted Isaiah 52, 7 messianically, which may have bearing on the servant's identity if the passages are to be linked. Okay, so anyway, the uh, addition of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only full copy of any book in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the book of Isaiah. So we have lots to compare with and compare the Septuagint and the Masoretic text and Qumran Isaiah together, one with the three amongst each other. So now the 4Q541 fragment 9. Portion of 4Q541 includes themes about an individual that will atone for his generation, his people, despite his people being evil and opposing him. Well, that's what he did. Does, does not John 1, 1 say he came unto his own and his own received him not? Hangel, and, and they didn't even know who he was until he finally died. Even the apostles weren't sure whether he was the Messiah or not. Hangel and Bailey reviewed this fragment and others saying, quote, as early as 1963, Starkey suspected that these portions of 4Q540 and 541 seemed to evoke a suffering Messiah in the perspective opened up by the servant songs. The text of 4Q541, fragment 9, reads, quote, And he will atone for all the children of his, that is his race, his generation, his people Israel, and he will be sent to all the children of his people not to the entire world. His word is like the word of the heavens and his teaching according to the will of God. Oh, he was a rabbi. Oh, okay. His eternal sun will shine and its fire will burn in all the ends of the earth. Boy, yeah, because he's going to light up the He's going to light up the Pharisees and the Edomites and the Canaanites and all their followers. And boy, that will be some candelabra. Above the darkness it will shine. Then darkness will vanish from the earth and gloom from the dry land. They will utter many words against him and an abundance of lies. They will fabricate fables against him and utter every kind of disparagement against him. His generation will be evil and changed and will be at its position of deceit and violence. Probably, there's a word missing here, and will probably be eliminated. And the people will go astray in his days, and they will be bewildered. Okay? Well, that describes Judeo-Christians even today. Totally and utterly bewildered. Because they think the Jews are God's chosen. And Jesus never taught that. Yahshua never taught that. None of the apostles taught that. And those Old Testament people, so-called Jews by the translators, are Judahites, not Edomite Jews. Okay? 
That's how. It's just one of the words they use to bewilder us. Bewildering. It's so easy to bewilder people by changing definitions of words and by substituting one word for another, such as Jew for Judahite. Really easy to do that in the translating process, right? Even though it's not consistent, why don't they use the word Jew for Judah in all the 500 places that you see the word Judah? It's only a few places they do this. But the point is to make create an equation, an equal sign in your mind between Jew and Judah. That's the purpose of this deception. That's why the word Jew is in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it comes from the word Judean, which uh, a Judean is that multiculti state that was created by John Hyrcanus when he invited the Edomites to come into the city of Jerusalem and uh, upon circumcision or death, <laughs> right? So either the Edomites submitted to uh, circumcision and become a citizen of Judea, there's no way that an Edomite can become a Judahite, folks. So the word Judean is a reference to that multi-culti city that had two distinct groups of people, namely Judahites and Edomite Jews. And that's the proper use of the word Jew in the New Testament, referring to those Edomites who hated Christ and did not believe one word about any of the prophecies concerning him. So let's continue here. Uh, 11Q13 or 11Q Melch, also 11Q Melch, or the Melchizedek document, is a fragmentary manuscript among the Dead Sea Scrolls from Cave 11, which mentions Melchizedek as leader of God's angels in a war in heaven against the angels of darkness instead of the more familiar Archangel Michael. Well, Archangel Michael would be the leader of the good angels, right? There are no contradiction or conflict there whatsoever. The text is an apocalyptic commentary on the Jubilee year of Leviticus 25. Hmm. The Jubilee year of Leviticus 25. I will have to look at that and see uh, if, if that is a correspondence with the 70 Jubilees from the day that the Israelites invaded Canaan land <laughs> seven times uh, 49. I think I did the calculation elsewhere, 2,430 years, I think it is. And it corresponds exactly with the year 2024 from the date 1406, which is the year that the Israelites invaded Canaan land, which, which means and the number 70 is the number of judgment. It's the number of judgment the Israelites were punished by having to live 70 years in Babylon before they could be set free. So now we've got 70 jubilees of captivity. And the fact is, even though Yahshua came in 33 AD on Passover to redeem Israel from our past sins, not future sins, from our past sins, we were not completely cleansed because the, the kingdom, even though it may exist in our hearts, is not really evident in the world today because there is so much evil in the world. We have to kind of shrug that off, disassociate from it, and not be part of it. Okay? 
present in the body, but absent to this world. Paraphrasing another verse. We are present with Yahweh and absent from, even when even present in the body. We are with Yahweh, not with this world. Do not conform yourself to the world as First John says. We are not to be like the people of this world. We are a segregated, dedicated people, strange compared to the rest of the world, because we have a totally different set of laws, which none of the rest of the world, including the Jews, keep. All right, so let's continue here. This pass, the passage includes a quotation of Isaiah 52:7, and a messianic explanation that ties the passage with Daniel 9:25. The scroll reads thusly, verse 13. But Melchizedek will carry out the vengeance of God's judgments, and on that day he will free them from the hand of Belial and from the hand of all the spirits of his lots. So it's confirming that there is a spiritual reality behind Belial, which, of course, we call Satan or the devil and whatever other name you want to give that creature. It is a spiritual, real spiritual creature. Verse 14. To his aid shall come all the gods of justice, and he is the one who, among all the sons of God, and text missing here. This is the day of peace about which he said through Isaiah the prophet who said in Isaiah 52 7 how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace the messenger of good who announces salvation saying to Zion which is us your God reigns. Now are the Jews bringing a message of peace? Unless you think communism is peace, unless you think Zionism is peace, unless you think constant war is peace, then it's obvious that the Jews have not brought us any peace at all. Verse 17, its interpretation. The mountains are the prophets. Verse 18, and the messenger is the anointed of the Spirit, as Daniel said about him, that's Daniel 9.25, until anointed a prince. It is seven weeks and the message. That's the prophecy of the coming of Messiah in 70 weeks of years, of course. Verse 19, good who announces salvation is the one about whom it is written that. Okay, so it's very obvious that the Dead Sea Scrolls are in conformity with the Septuagint and our Christian interpretation of the Masoretic text of Isaiah 52 and 53. Okay? And it can only be such because we are his people, not the Jews. All right? Once you understand who and what the Jews really are, they can no longer fool you. But the Judeo-Christians of this world still believe that lie, and they have no... A conformity with scripture whatsoever in their church practices and their theology. That's the reality of the situation. Okay, getting back to this article. All right, so in the Septuagint, the verbal aspect and subject of many verbs differ from the MT. Now, again, 
it's really nice that we have these three original sources, even though the Masoretic text has been doctored and much of the Hebrew has been deleted by the Masoretes, we have the full version of the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And at least as regarding the book of Isaiah, we have a, a total third witness and which, which is in Hebrew, by the way, of that one book of the Bible. Very, very important book, by the way. <laughs> okay. Major, major prophecies throughout the book of Isaiah. Okay, so let me repeat this. In the Septuagint, the verbal aspect and subject of many verbs differ from the Masoretic text. In 53.8, the child slash servant is led to death. With the translator seeing... Yamavet, rather than Yamo, doesn't uh, distinguish between the meetings. Maybe we can uh, find it out by reading through here. Verses 10 through 12 shift the narrative toward the we in the audience, beseeching the reader to perform a sin offering in order to cleanse and justify the righteous servant child who was an innocent sufferer. Hengel and Bailey comment, quote, Therefore, in the MT of verse 10, the servant himself gives his life as a, a guilt offering. That is, an atoning sacrifice. By contrast, the Greek conditional sentence says, in verse 10b, requires a sin offering from the members of the congregation who previously went astray and who were guilty and in relationship to the servant in order that they might receive their share of the salvation promised to the servant. Well, okay, well, both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. It's just a matter of emphasis. Because unless you, as an Israelite, accept his personal self-sacrifice on your behalf, if you don't accept that, then you're not a true Israelite. Despite these differences with the Masoretic text, the vicarious suffering theme of the MT remains intact, as evidenced by the Septuagint verses 4 through 6, which state, This one carries our sins and suffers pain for us, and we regarded him as one who was in difficulty, misfortune, and affliction. But he was wounded because of our sins, and he became sick because of our lawless acts. The discipline of our peace was upon him. By his bruise we were healed. We all have been misled like sheep. Each person was misled in his own path. And Yahweh handed him over for our sins. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Lexham English Septuagint. Very good. I like that translation. That is very good. While the theme of vicarious suffering is strong in the Septuagint, the translation avoids saying that the servant actually dies in verse 4. The MT's imagery that could imply death is lessened to misfortune slash blow. Job's and Silva also note, quote, This rendering is only one of several examples where the translator clearly avoids statements that attribute the servant's sufferings to God's action. Well, the Father and the Son were in total agreement that this has to happen. In verse 8, the servant is led to death. But in verse 9, 
God saved the servant before his execution by giving the wicked and the wealthy unto death instead of the servant. Hengel notes that this t- that the tendency to downplay the idea of vicarious suffering continued in Theodosian's Greek translation, and which I will quote from here. Okay, so bear in mind that all of this is theological speculation, and we already understand that we are the ones that he died for. Only Israel and no other people. There's no universalism anywhere in the Bible. So we have to act accordingly and understand accordingly. But most of these interpreters are universalists. It's very obvious they're universalists. Okay. But anyway, the text says here, and this is Theodosian's Greek translation. Hold on, I've got to wet my whistle here. Jewish interpretation, which could here mean actually Jewish or Judahite, if he's referring to the Old Testament, it's Judahite interpretation, sharpens a tendency toward a statement of judgment at the end of the song and can completely suppress the idea of vicarious suffering. This is shown by, the, well, he's, Yahshua said, take up your cross and follow me, <laughs> okay? That's, that's vicarious suffering if there ever was. This is shown by Theodosian in the last phrase of 53.12. Against the Septuagint's expression of vicariousness in which the servant was delivered up on account of their sins, of our sins, but that's the fact. He was delivered up in order to absolve us of our old sins. Otherwise, there's no reason for him to do that because he himself was not a sinner. He had no sin. To erase. Theodosian reads et impious torquebit, and he will torture the impious. <laughs> that that didn't happen at the first advent. That's why this prophecy is two-pronged, a two-advent prophecy. The Septuagint is still a long way from this complete reversal of the thought. The servant receives his authority to act as judge precisely because he did not do wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Hmm. Very powerful. Very powerful, therefore. I like that. Because he did not do wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth, even as a child. Motif of the innocent and righteous sufferer is therefore even clearer in the Septuagint than in the MT. Thank you very much. Unlike with 1Q Isaiah A, the identity of the servant in Isaiah 53 Septuagint is unclear. Well, come on. I mean, if you're a total novice to scripture, it might be unclear. But the fact is, Isaiah 53 is all about the coming of Messiah. F. Hahn concluded without elaboration, quote, A messianic interpretation cannot be recognized even in the Septuagint version of Isaiah 53. Hengel disagrees, stating, But who is this righteous one (laughs) in the eyes of the translator? Some rabbi, maybe? A one-sided collective interpretation referring to Israel seems to me hardly possible. Don't know what he means by that. He, he clearly said, 
I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Israel must be identified rather with the confession of the we group, which can hardly refer to the so-called Gentile nations, since, uh, since those people have no report to proclaim. As in 53.1, nor are the so-called Gentiles healed by his wounds or bruises. This can only apply to the people of God, thank you very much, who are not Jews. The servant will rather judge the kings and the nations, the wicked and the rich. The many in 53.11 through 12 are the same as the we who make their confession in the first person plural in verses 1 through 7. Yeah, we Israelites confess our sins. The Jews deny having ever sinned. Am I right? Or am I right? Not even in the Old Testament. And Brother Aber, uh, yeah, Catholic means universal, Paul. That's that. Thank you very much. And, uh, okay. Yeah, Yahshua is the seed of the woman in the flesh. The spiritual seed of the Y chromosome came from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's exactly, or actually, uh, in the previous show, I forgot who put it in the chat room, suggesting that what Yahweh did from Adam's supposed rib was Adam, now all males carry a Y chromosome. All females carry an X chromosome. However, Two X's makes a female, and one X and one Y makes a male. You don't need to have two Y's to make a male. You just have to have one X and one Y. So maybe what Yahweh did to Eve, because she already had two X's, because she's a female, he just upgraded her X chromosomes to gain the Holy Spirit. Because he had breathed the Holy Spirit into Adam in Genesis 2.7. And he has to have done the same to Eve in some way or another. And that's when they became one flesh. When both had the upgraded chromosomes. to So that we, Adamites, can house or entertain or live with the Holy Spirit in our physical bodies, okay? No other race has ever had that ability, okay? And so, getting back to what Brother Aber was saying here about Second Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, a sin offering for us, yeah, I mean, that, that's more specific, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Note, who knew no sin, he was the sinless one. If he had had sin, then he needed, would have needed to be redeemed also. But he did not need to be redeemed because he did not sin. Okay, so let me get back to the text here. This is really good stuff. And actually... Now that we're discussing Paul, because Paul in Hebrews 7 talks about 
Melchizedek the priest. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. There's no such thing as a Jewish king of peace. And there's no such thing as a Jewish king of righteousness without father or mother because it's a priesthood that had to be informed by physical priests at some point. And, of course, it's an eternal priesthood. And now Paul clearly tells it that Yahshua is now our high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Don't you know? All right. Without father or mother, without genealogy. But it's, it's we're the ones who provide the genealogy. We're the ones who provide the mother and father. Without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Of course, the Jews deny that. So verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham, oh, is this a commentary here? I'm not reading from um, Esort. This is, uh, this is from Bible Gateway. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. But this is a different priesthood. It's still in within the Adamic people. But it's a priesthood that, well, I mean, it's it starts out in the Old Testament as being the priesthood of the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son. And that's why Enoch never achieved this priesthood because he died before he could take over as eldest son. So, and then he was translated directly into heaven. So it was Elijah. And so, no, well, Moses wasn't because he did sin. <laughs> All right. Anyway, he, he, struck, he struck the commandment tables against the rock and uh, yeah, in his anger. And Yahweh did not instruct him to do that. That was a bad example, uh, Moses. Bad example. Anyway, even though they are also descended from Abraham. So this is a priesthood that comes and goes. Probably the best way I can put it. But nevertheless, they are all Adamites, and right now they can only be Israelites because that priesthood went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and no other people. Okay, so let's continue. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So Levi hadn't been born yet. Jesus is like Melchizedek. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, okay, I guess it's just the translation here is so different from the KJV, I didn't recognize it as a translation, but that's what this is. Verse 11, and again, this is Hebrews, oh, come on. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 7. 
Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 now. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, well, what were they doing? Their function was the animal sacrifices, the taking of oblations, and the teaching of all the law for that matter. However, their physical function was to redeem Israel annually through these various sacrifices. Okay? And when Yahshua died, the Levitical priesthood also died along with him. It was abolished because it was no longer necessary to sacrifice animals. And now, but who took their place? The false priests of the Pharisaic sect, empowered by Herod and the Romans. And the transition from one priesthood to the other is barely noticed by theologians. As if the Pharisees were Levites. No, they were not. They were Edomites pretending to be priests of Israel. That's what they were. Pretenders, imposters, impersonators. And so, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Well, the sacrificial law was changed. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served the altar. He's spiritual Israel. I even hate to say it. <laughs> spiritual Israel. But of course, we come from that spiritual world. And Jesus returned to it. And is there. And he's going to come again for us. Verse 14. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. I am the root and the offspring of David, he said. How can he be the root of the tribe of Judah? Because he created the world according to John chapter 1. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and the, because... Nobody was able to keep the whole law because of our weakness. But at least you have to try. And unfortunately, a lot of Judeo-Christians today aren't even trying. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, even among the Judeo-Christians, they follow Jesus because Yahshua said very clearly, my sheep hear my voice and follow me, but you Jews cannot hear my voice because... You, you do not understand my speech. You don't have it in you to understand me, he tells them. Okay? Again, you cannot read the Bible without understanding these distinctions between Judahites and Jews and between Israelites and Jews. But the whole purpose of religion in the modern world, Judaism and Judeo-Christianity, is to confuse the issue 
and not make any distinction between Jews and Judahites or between Jews and Israelites. That is the one confounding false idea that is promoted by Judeo-Christianity that needs to go, absolutely must go. The Jews are not Israelites, nor are they Judahites. They are imposters. Okay, so getting back to the article here on Wikipedia, which is a really outstanding comparison of the three texts, the Masoretic text, the Isaiah scroll, and the Septuagint. Really good stuff here. Okay, the many, I'll just back up a little bit here. The many in Isaiah 53, 11, and 12 are the same as the we who make their confession in the first person, plural, in verses 1 through 7. We, us, Israel, whenever Paul says we or us, he is referring to the Israelites, not to anybody who reads the Bible. It's exclusive language. It is not universalistic language. They represent the doubting, straying Israel. Very good. For which the servant has sacrificed himself. Amen to that. If the people of Israel repent, acknowledging and confessing their sins, do you expect a Jew to acknowledge and confess sins? Especially these Jews who say they have done nothing wrong and blame all their crimes on Christians? which is perhaps their spiritual sin offering. Yeah, the the only spiritual sin offering the Jews have is lies, spiritual darkness in high places. Then on the basis of the servant's vicarious atoning suffering, they may share his exalted destiny, we hope. At least the possibility of a messianic interpretation must be kept open, though as the Qumran texts now show, in the 2nd century B.C., the concept of what was messianic was not yet as clearly fixed on the eschatological saving king from the house of David as it was later to become in the post-Christian non-anti-rabbinic tradition. They say rabbinic here. There is no rabbinical tradition in Christianity. None whatsoever. Jesus himself said, Be not called rabbi. One is your savior, even Messiah not any old rabbi. We must not allow the narrow concept of the Messiah and the post-Christian rabbis, well, those not Christians, they're Jews, to regulate the diverse pre-Christian messianic ideas. Well, that's a good point. You know, we can't allow the Jews to interpret the Bible for us. But yet that's what Judeo-Christians do. They let the Jews interpret everything for us. And then they believe every word the devil says. New, New Testament, first century. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, not for all. Isn't this incredible that so many Judeos read all where it merely says many? Yeah, <laughs> the sewer priesthood of rabbit mohels underneath in the tunnels of the Kabad Lubavitcher synagogue in New York City. Mr. Kim Smith says, rib means the DNA helix curve. I bet you are absolutely right about that because, in fact, the 
the first book of the Bible is mistitled. It should not be the book of Genesis. There's only two or three verses about Genesis generating things, okay? The whole rest of the book of Genesis is actually about genetics, DNA, the tree of life, and the other species that have their own spirit and their own DNA. Genesis 1, 11, those creatures that reproduce kind after kind and have their seed within them. Each, each species has its own tree or DNA. Okay. Yes. And, and, but it is also a fact that the bone marrow of the ribs contain the most, that, that's where the blood, most of the blood for us Adamites is created. And all species, the, the ribs are the most prolific and abundant creator of the blood for whatever animal it is. Okay. So let's continue here. Yeah, and so we're we're witnessing. I mean, uh, the good news is that more and more people are eschewing Judaism, and you know they're such an ugly, and actually in reality stupid people, because they're incapable of changing their modus operandi. They always do it the the same way, telling the same old lies since Cain. <laughs> since Cain said, "Am I my brother's keeper?" No, Judaism is Jewish supremacism. They don't give a damn about the Goyim. So why we should, get, we should we give a damn about them? So this is what we're dealing with, folks. These people are evil because they have the blood of Cain flowing in their veins. Who was carrying the blood of that fallen angel? So here are some comparisons of the New Testament Quotations of Isaiah 53. Okay, Isaiah 52:13, New Testament quotation in John 3:14 and John 8:28. Jesus is the man lifted up. I have never seen a rabbi lifted up, certainly not capable of walking on water. Isaiah 52:15, Romans 15:21, evangelists like Paul who spread the servant's message to the Israelite nations to the dispersion. That's what the word Gentile really means. Isaiah 53.1, Romans 10.16, John 12.38, the unbelief of Israel regarding the servant. Yeah, our people in the days that Yahshua walked the earth did not even realize who he was. Even the apostles, the apostles were unsure of who he was. Isaiah 53.4, quoted in Matthew 8.17. Yahshua, the miraculous healer, taking Israel's diseases. Isaiah 53.5, quoted in 1 Peter 2.24. Yahshua as the wounded one who heals others. Isaiah 53.6, 1 Peter 2.25. Has a rabbi ever healed anybody? Humanity straying like sheep and brought back through Jesus. No, Israel. I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. Acts 8, 32, 33. Yahshua himself. Verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 22. Yahshua who committed no sin. Isaiah 53, 12. Uh, quoted by Luke 22, 37. Yahshua numbered with the transgressors. Now, to be included among us does not mean he is a transgressor. You know, you get in a lineup 
okay? Certainly one of the people in the lineup, well, it may, may not, may, none of them may be guilty, right? But at least one of the people in the lineup may be guilty, and that's what the lineup is for, to try to figure out who is the guilty one. But they may, none of them may be guilty of anything. They're just a lineup. And I'll bet a lot of people have been falsely accused because of a misidentification in the lineup. I would never want that to happen to me. Anyway, but just because he is numbered among the transgressors does not mean he is a transgressor. Don't read too much into the verse. Gospels and Acts. The first recorded words of Yahshua in the Gospel of Mark, believed by many to be the earliest gospel, are the following, quote, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel evangelion, Mark 1, verse 15. Biblical scholars often point to Isaiah 52, 7 as the background for Jesus' proclamation. The Isaiah passage speaks of a messenger who would bring good news, Septuagint evangelion, of Yahweh's kingdom, and the announcement of salvation, Yeshua. Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, identifies himself as both the messenger of Isaiah 52.7 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, a linkage that was not unique in Mosaism. Craig Evans cites multiple sources that link the good news of Isaiah 52.7 with the report of Isaiah 53.1, Dead Sea Scrolls, Targum, Paul, and Peter. Thus, there is good reason to conjecture that whenever the New Testament authors speak of the gospel or good news, it is a reference to Isaiah 53, as they saw it fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Yahshua. See also Acts 8.35. The New Testament authors refer to the good news 76 times. So what is that good news? It is very simply that we Israelites have salvation through our Messiah. Or even better, salvation is offered to us by acceptance of the Messiah and by following his way. Be righteous like he was righteous. Jesus directly quotes and applies Isaiah 53.12 to himself. In Luke 22:37, Mark 10:45, quoted above, is not a direct quotation of Isaiah 53, but alludes to it with the theme of serving many, not all, not even all Israelites, but only many Israelites because not all Israelites accepted him. Not all Israelites even accept him today. Serving many through his own death, his self-sacrifice. These two passages provide examples of Yahshua's self-understanding as the servant of Isaiah 53. That's good because that's another way of understanding that Yahshua did, in fact, claim to be the Messiah. And remember, when he quoted those passages from the Old Testament, he ended his sermon by saying, These words are now fulfilled in your ears. <laughs> to the assembly at Capernaum, which was in Galilee, not among the so-called Edomite Jews. And still, they wanted to throw him over a cliff. How dare you say that you're the Messiah? 
How dare you say that you're the fulfillment of these passages in Isaiah? How dare you? You're just a mere mortal. No, not a mere mortal. Man, God, divine person in human form, however you want to put it, is not a mere man. Jesus directly quotes and applies Isaiah 53 to himself, etc. Several other passages in the Gospels and Acts apply the chapter to Jesus, but not through his own lips. Matthew comments on Yahshua's miracles in healing his fellow Israelites, saying that such miracles were a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.4. And he said this in Matthew 8.17. A prominent place is given to the chapter in Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. Now, actually, as I'm reading through this, this is a really good argument against John Hagee, the puppet of the rabbinical Jews, who claims that Yahshua never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, of course he did. When he had that conversation with the, uh, not the Canaanite woman, but the Israelite woman at the well, she says to him, well, we have a Messiah, and you you sound a lot like him. You know so much about Scripture that you, know, you, you might know him. And he says to her, I am he. Several other passages in the Gospels and Acts apply to the chapter of Jesus. Good stuff here. A prominent place is given to the chapter in Acts 8:26 through 40, where an Ethiopian eunuch, and this was an Israelite living in Ethiopia, reads, it might have been a member of the dispersion as well. Yeah, he was a member of the dispersed Israel. Reads a chapter in the Septuagint and asks Philip, Oh, no, this is beautiful. Again, this is more proof that the Israelites of the New Testament day did not have the Hebrew scriptures available to them. Why? Because Herod did a, a bountiful job of destroying the Old Testament records. And the only people who had access to those Hebrew records were the Masoretic rabbis. Therefore, the only scriptures that the New Testament Christians had available to themselves was the Septuagint. And asks Philip, quote, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else, unquote. So this is what the Ethiopian eunuch is asking Philip. Who's, who's this talking about? Acts 8.34 ESV. Without elaboration, Acts continues, quote, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Yeshua. Okay. <laughs> well, he didn't say, it's about Yeshua. He just begins his statement by saying, Oh, well, these are here's the prophecies concerning Messiah. Uh, you get it? <laughs> you get the point? Get who we're talking about here? Howard Marshall commented as follows on Philip's response, quote, It implies that even by this early date, 30 CE, the recognition that the job description in Isaiah 53 is Yahshua, and only Yahshua, was then current among Christians. Okay, yeah. Somebody needs to print this out and send it to John Hagee. But, of course, 
he will ask for the approval of his, the rabbi that has put the uh, blessing of Satan upon his ministry. A couple more verses here. Epistles. Paul alludes to the themes of Isaiah 53 in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21, where he identifies Yahshua as the sinless one who delivers righteousness to sinners. He says, quote, In him, in Yahshua, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the word become in English could mean either to turn into or be like. I don't think it can be read as turn into, only be like, because very few of us can really imitate him to the T. This closely parallels Isaiah 53.11, where it says that the righteous servant make, make the many righteous, not everybody, but the many, and bear the many's punishment. Now, of course, if you reject him, then his sacrifice at Calvary means nothing. You have to acknowledge him as the Messiah, which no Jew will ever do. Therefore, no Jew can ever be saved. Despite what the Christian Zionists believe, they just believe Jewish lies. In Romans 10.15, Paul identifies the message of salvation in Yahshua as the good news of Isaiah 52.7. Immediately thereafter, he appeals to Isaiah 53.1 and equates the good news with the message that Israel had rejected. Romans 10.16. Not that the world had rejected. The world knew nothing of these things. With this exegesis, Paul holds that the Judahite rejection... We know the Jews are going to reject him. We're talking about Judahites and Israelites. The Judahite rejection of Yahshua was prophesied by Isaiah, although the rejection was not in full, with Israel coming to believe in him at his apocalyptic return, Romans 11. John 12:38 cites Isaiah 53:1 for the same purpose of explaining that uh, Judahite rejection of Yahshua had been foretold. Okay. So, any New Testament Christians out there who don't think that the Old Testament is relevant? Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you next time. Bye-bye.